0: Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we'll report back on the fight to free journalist and the globally championed political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal. We'll speak to an uh, award-winning journalist and uh, also we'll hear about the battle that the homeless are fighting in the face of torrential rains up and down the coast of California. It is desperate all this and more coming up straight ahead on flashpoints stay tuned You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We are live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and we are happy to have you along over the Free Speech Pacifica Radio Network. We begin... Uh, once again, it's almost unbelievable that this we're still having to fight this battle, but that's the way it is, uh, to free prison journalist, visionary Mumia Abu Jamal, who was set up by one of the most corrupt police departments uh, this country has ever seen. Uh, And we're still battling, the people are still battling to free this journalist, this activist, this visionary who's now uh, caught the attention of uh, activists and writers and journalists all around the world. We are delighted. It's been too long, but we're delighted to welcome back to these airwaves uh, Professor Arthur Lynn Washington. He is an expert on the case. He's a professor of journalism at Temple University. Uh, There was a a major event uh, over the weekend uh, featuring some extraordinary uh, folks. We're going to hear more about that, and we're going to give you a deep update on who Momia Abu-Jamal is. We're going to remind you and why perhaps he is still being allowed. uh, I was going to say rot in a prison, but Momia Abu-Jamal doesn't sit still long enough to rot, even in a prison, even on death row, Lynn Washington. He's been able to keep his spirit whole and alive. Welcome back to Flashpoints. Uh, hi, Dennis. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, and I, I hate to do this again, but I want you to give us the basic you know, description. Who is Momia Abu Jamal, give us a bit of a thumbnail sketch for, so folks who don't know might understand what this battle is about.
1: Well, it, 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 the bottom line when uh, we Abu Jamal is an incredible person. Here's a person who's been locked up for um, 40 years. Uh, about 30 of a, of that of those years were on death row. Uh, while in prison, he's written uh, over 3,000 commentaries. Uh, which is more than many journalists produce in their entire career. Uh, he's written or co-authored uh, over 12 books, which puts him in the scholar area. He has um, finished his college degree, got a master's degree, is now working on a Ph.D. Uh, he now speaks uh, two foreign languages, one of which is German, uh, a very difficult language to learn. Uh, and yeah. I, yeah in, in, And a couple of other things that are of relevance. um, You know, we talk so much about the facts of the Mamouya case and and the injustices uh, embedded in it, uh, but we kind of forget the face behind the facts. You know, so Momia is a brother, um, you know, a relative. uh, He's a a father. He's a grandfather. And now he's a widower. Uh, His beloved wife uh, passed uh, within the last month or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's who Mumia Abu-Jamal is. Now, prior to his arrest on December ninth, 1981, uh, Mumia was one of the uh, most recognized journalists in Philadelphia. Uh, In fact, in 1981, uh, the Philadelphia Magazine uh, identified 81 people in 81 to keep an eye on. And they said one was Abu-Jamal because of his eloquent and impassioned um journalism uh he was known uh, when you know prior to his arrest but based on his um reporting he was known as the voice of the voiceless that he would you know uh, report on and tell the stories of uh, those who are generally left out pushed into the the margins of society and that phrase voice of the voiceless the um um The U.S. The American Society of uh, Professional Journalists (SPJ) has an ethics code, and one of the provisions in the ethics code is journalists should give voice to the voiceless. That phrasing of giving voice to the voiceless, that directive that the this organization gave to all journalists around the United States, was not adopted by that organization until the mid-90s. So, Abu Jamal over 20 years before that became a directive for American journalists, he was already known for doing that. So that's a little thumbnail sketch of uh, who Moumey um, Abu-Jamal uh, is. And we, we should mention that at
0: the time that you're referencing, he was reporting for public radio. Uh, he has obviously an extraordinary voice and delivery besides the, his ability uh, to write um amazing commentaries Uh, and he was let's talk a little bit about the atmospheric pressure at the time that he was arrested he was reporting he was a black man he was reporting in the context of one of the most corrupt police departments in the history of the country could you give us a little background on that
1: right the Philadelphia Police Department is notorious for its uh, brutality In fact, in 1979, which would have been two years before Momia's arrest, the federal government filed a lawsuit against the city of Philadelphia, charging the mayor, a number of his uh, top officials in his administration, and all of the um, top officials in the police department with aiding and abetting police brutality. This was the first suit of its kind ever filed, in the history of the United States. So police brutality had to be really, really bad in Philadelphia uh, for such a suit to uh, have taken place. During the 70s, when uh, a guy named Frank Rizzo was the mayor, Frank Rizzo was the former police commissioner. He was elevated to uh, mayor and he was very adamant that right or wrong, he would defend his police. at one point, during the 70s, the Philadelphia police shot and killed more people than the police force in New York. You know, let's be clear, the police force in New York has its own history of brutality. And uh, New York at that time was about five times larger than Philadelphia. So the per capita deaths um, by the Philadelphia Police Department was extraordinary. And that did not account for the people who were just shot by police and i don't mean to minimize just shot but i'm just saying there were people who were shot injured some injured uh substantially but then there were some fatalities and then there were the beatings that went on every day um if, if at least twice a week i had to do some kind of police brutality story somebody would come to the paper that i was working with and um, You know, they would be bloodied and and bruised and, you know, clothes all torn off. And when I was working for the African-American-owned newspaper in the city, the Philadelphia Tribune, the people would come to the Tribune uh, asking, you know, for somebody to cover their story. And they had already gone to the dailies, the three dailies in the city, uh, the Inquirer, the Daily News, and the Bulletin, and couldn't even get in the front door. They didn't even want to talk to these victims of police brutality, so they would come down to the Tribune and we would do stories on them. And Mameel was doing those types of stories. And it wasn't just police brutality, but he was looking at many issues that uh, impact the urban poor. Uh, But it wasn't just that he was doing, you know, uh, grassroots type reporting. I mean, he was a part of a a team uh, when he was working with public radio that covered the uh, visit of the Pope to Philadelphia. And that team coverage won a a major broadcast award. I think it was the Armstrong Award. Uh, he interviewed yes. Bob Marley. He interviewed uh, Julius Irving, who at the time was an outstanding basketball player um, uh, in, in Philadelphia, a professional basketball player. So he had a range of, of, of coverage. Um, but uh, right. the, go on please. Yeah, but what I was just going to say the the that era in Philadelphia the 1970s, going into the early 80s, was dominated by the issue of abusive policing. Uh, from false arrests to fatal shootings.
0: And one of the things uh, that sort of intensified the level of the brutality was the bobbin by the police department of a suburban house that was owned, I guess, or lived in by the MOVE group. And Mumia abu I I guess wasn't uh, all that um, sanguine with the idea that you had the Philadelphia Police Department dropping bombs uh, in suburbia. Um, That began a whole different level of Mumia's life when he took on that issue uh, and beyond. You want to talk about how he tangled with the police and wa- how he ended up on death row. It certainly
1: wasn't because he killed anybody. Well, um, yeah. The, during the 70s, there was an ongoing battle between the Philadelphia police and an organization called MOVE. They were a predominantly black organization, uh, self-described revolutionaries. They loved a counterculture-type lifestyle um, hey, so they, they were kind of on the margins of society, but uh, one of the things that they would do is that they would not back down from Rizzo's police force. So there was a, a lot of fights, I mean, fist fights, uh, and then th- those battles escalated from say 1976 when there was a confrontation and the police um, a police officer allegedly stomped and stomped on a, um, a moved baby and, and killed it, uh, and things just started escalating. So we get to early 1978. Uh, Rizzo wanted to get the move out of a, a compound that they were living in near the University of, of Pennsylvania, an area that they wanted to gentrify, and ultimately did. Um, not just the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel, but you know the. Um, powers that be financially. They wanted to gentrify that area. And, um, uh, things culminated into a shootout on uh, August 8th, 1978. And during that shootout, you had one of the first, uh, televised, um, assaults by police officers on a unarmed person. Uh, this, uh, one of the leaders of the MOVE organization was savagely beaten. And this was, um, 12 years or more before rodney king um and Mumia saw that uh and he was um it affected him and so he started doing more and more reportage on uh move and uh that reportage kind of ran him a with some of the organizations that he was working for so it was, as we flash forward into 1981 Um, many of the stations that he had worked for because of his um, efforts to do more coverage on MOVE. And some of the coverage, you know, crossed the line in terms of the veneer of objectivity that journalists are supposed to maintain. Um, He, you know, ran a file with some of the owners. So as a result of that, he wasn't working full-time. He was working part-time, but as a diligent uh, individual, one who, you know, took uh, his role as husband and father Um, To heart. Uh, He was going to make money for his family. So he was driving a cab. He was driving a cab on December 9th, 1981. He goes to leave off a fair and um, get a bite to eat in a nightlife area of the city. He sees his brother being beaten by a police officer. He goes over to uh, see what's going on. And within literally within uh, a minute or so, the police officer's dead, Mumia is shot, uh, police arriving on the scene, uh, beat him, who Mumi is now injured but by a policeman's bullet, uh, injured critically. Police beatings, they uh, admit actually they admitted on, on the witness stand on some of the court proceedings, that they accidentally rammed his head into a uh, telephone pole seven times. Thanks. You accidentally do that once, maybe three times, but not seven. That's (laughs) conscientious, right? He goes to the hospital. They beat him in the hospital. um, And, you know, pre-op and post-op, he's beaten in the hospital. He's charged with murder. He has a trial in 1982 uh, before a a notorious uh, pro-police judge who actually uh, on the eve of the trial uh, was overheard saying that he planned to help prosecutors fry the n-word but he didn't use n-word he used that word so you can see that one it was racially biased very odious to use that term but also it was biased in terms of uh him making a pro prosecution posture which is in total violation of every thing a judge is supposed to be judges supposed to be independent arbiters not one who put their thumb in, in the instance of uh, judge sabo actually put his whole ball fist on the scales of justice to make sure that uh Abu Jamal was uh, convicted. He was convicted, uh sentenced to death row. He languished on death row for about twenty eight years. Um then the uh decisive appeals uh they found one fault. I mean amazing of all of the faults in the case they only found one in federal courts. And they said that the judge uh, did not give proper instructions to the jury uh, during the death penalty proceeding. And um, they set aside his uh, death penalty, and the prosecution decided not to re-imposition of the death penalty because that would have required them to hold a court proceeding where new evidence could be brought out. Now, the new evidence would just be brought out, but the proceeding would just be to determine whether he goes back to death row or, or goes into what Pennsylvania has is life in prison without parole, meaning you're in prison until you die. And, and in an effort to make sure that the new evidence that was there, evidence that had been suppressed conscientiously by police and prosecutors at the original trial and throughout the proceeding, uh, they opted not to um, uh, retry or, you know, try to resentence him, and they allowed his sentence to be converted. So I guess for like the past 10 years or so, he's been in a general population, and um, he's been suffering a lot of medical problems. Um, he had hepatitis C, which uh, led to uh, kidney problems, and liver problems. Uh, he almost died. Uh, the state would not give him treatment for the hepatitis C. The treatment that they were giving him was causing it. Uh, incredible skin problems. I mean, he was itching all the time. He was scaly. All day. he almost looked like a reptilian when he had so many scales. And his fight to get treatment for himself enabled um, the all the other inmates in Pennsylvania's prison system, which at that point was thousands of people who had been infected by hepatitis C. They were able to get treatment. The state of Pennsylvania was willing to allow people who contracted. This you know horrible disease to die rather than to give them the treatment. So many of the initiatives that Mumia's made have uh, helped others uh, more more so than they have helped him. So now he's um, still in prison and he has a new round of appeals that is really interesting. It's clear cut. You don't have to be a lawyer or a law professor or a judge to see um, that um, he needs to uh, either at least get a new hearing, if not a new trial, but the evidence is of such substance that he should be released directly uh, from prison. And there have been instances where people who have had um, misconduct by police and prosecutors of a much lower degree than exists in the Mumia case to uh, be released directly from prison. Uh, But the courts uh, have so far refused to recognize Mumia's rights and give him the same relief that they've given to others. Thus, I coined a phrase about 12 years ago called the Mumia exception. The law means the law, except when it applies to Mumia. Just to give you a quick example, in 1992, there was a guy who was on death row like Mumia. He was convicted in a high-profile murder case, very similar to Mumia's uh, situation in that, you know, this murder had been the subject of books and TV shows and, you know, it was very, very high profile. And the prosecutors withheld um, some incredible evidence of innocence from this guy. They withheld it for two years. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling on this guy's appeal said that that act of withholding that evidence was for two years was such a gross violation of fundamental fairness and fair trial rights that it would be unconstitutional to retry him. So they released him directly from death row and, uh, but they wouldn't give the same kind of relief to Mumia. And interestingly enough, uh, this guy who was released directly from death row, uh, he had the help of a, a jailhouse attorney, uh, jailhouse lawyer, uh, to helping with his appeals and everything, and that jailhouse lawyer was Mamiya Abu Jamal. Uh, since his incarceration, he's he's become a very adept uh, jailhouse lo- lawyer. He's helped a lot of people get out, but he hasn't been successful. Uh, although the um, the elements of the appeals should have granted him relief, you know, twenty twenty years ago, uh, but the state is um, the state of Pennsylvania. In the whole apparatus, political and uh, police and law enforcement are arrayed against him. So he's the victim of, of institutional bias, not just individual biases, but institutional bias. And and, it can be. And it's
0: bipartisan. And it's bipartisan oh, yeah. institutional, right? Bipart. Oh, Everybody yeah. likes to talk about bipartisan. Uh, this, this, uh, uh, this death sentence. This, uh, you know life sentence, death sentence is clearly um, something that the Democrats the Bidens of this world won't even go near, just like they won't go near Leonard Peltier because when when it's a a choice between truth and following orders of the uh, police benevolent association everybody knows what these politicians do no matter how corrupt the police in Philadelphia are. Am I overstating Mm -hmm. the case? Oh, no,
1: not at all. I mean, when we look at, say, the case of Leonard Peltier, uh, the judge who sentenced him, as well as I think the prosecutor who tried him, said that, you know, he should be released. He was treated unfairly. What has kept him in prison for all these decades is that every time he comes up for a new trial or a new appeal proceeding or even consideration for some kind of parole, FBI agents, the FBI agent association, comes out and and demands that you know he get no relief. In fact, they've held marches to keep him in prison. Parallel right. to that, when Mumia has been subjected to incredible uh, interference and harassment by the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police, which is the Philadelphia's police union, which uh, has a propensity to back candidates like George Wallace. Uh, the segregationist candidate in the late 60s uh, backed Richard Nixon and backed uh, Donald Trump twice.
0: You know, now the the, the now National Book Award winner, Martina Spada, was commissioned by National Public Radio back a few years to uh, do a, po- a poem. And he decided to write a poem about Mumia Abu-Jamal. And the liberal, progressive National Public Radio censored the poem. And I know they did it because I called right in right after they did it, and I spoke Mm -hmm. to the uh, assistant producer, and she said, yeah, they didn't want us to run this.
1: Police Mm -hmm. power. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and prior to National Public Radio censoring that poet, Momia was slated uh, to do a series of commentaries on life in prison. Uh, so who would you want to um, talk about life in prison? A scientist who works in the Arctic or the Antarctica who has no experience with prison, you want to talk to a prisoner. And the reality is that most of the, a lot of the people in prison um, are not very articulate. They have um, you know, low IQs and that sort of thing. So here we have a unique person who could uniquely tell that story and um, when uh, NPR was getting ready to run his commentaries, the National and the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police went eight, I mean, it just went bonkers on it. And they got a U.S. Senator, one Robert Dole, uh, to get on the floor of the uh, Senate and just start railing against NPR for, you know, how, how dare they bring a cop killer in and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, NPR backed off, sheepishly backed off. Um, and, and, that attitude, you know, persisted, uh, when they, you know, censored the, um, uh, censored the poet. But, you know, it's so ridiculous. You know, we, it, you can't have a cop killer, uh, doing commentaries on uh, life in prison. So are you saying it's okay to have a child molester or a white collar corporate criminal? Um, So it just shows you the level of censorship in a country that supposedly uh, holds uh, freedom of the press and free speech in esteem. Uh, It just shows you the endemic corruption um, and and corrupted behaviors uh, in America that uh, go on daily. And we kind of give it a wink and a nod and, and keep pushing while we criticize other countries and send armies into other countries to make sure that they uphold democracy. Well, we don't have democracy here, like Malcolm X said. American democracy is disguised hypocrisy, and that's what we you see know, in the Mumia case.
0: It's interesting, Owen. The these days, it, you know, if you're a black person, all you have to do is be pulled over uh, for a non-violation, and you can be executed. You just, you know, the the word is shut your mouth, keep your hands uh, on the dashboard, look forward. Mm-hmm. You can get killed for looking for doing nothing. So you can right. understand why the white power structure would be afraid of somebody such as Mumia Abu-Jamal, who is a freaking genius when it comes to journalism, commentary, visionary thinking. It is... Extraordinary. It is really, wouldn't you say, Lynn? it's an example in the, the white power structure's fear, just like with uh, Lynette Peltier, fear of powerful indigenous and leaders of color. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? Oh,
1: oh, absolutely. And we've seen over the years uh, repeated efforts to crush those who are perceived by the system to be threats or people who can rally. Let's remember um, that infamous uh, memo that J. Edgar Hoover put out um, through the COINTELPRO program that they didn't want to uh, have a rise of a black messiah. This was in the wake of the killing of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, but they wanted to make sure that nobody else uh, would uh, be able to, you know, rise to that level of popularity and be able to effectuate the change. You know, then this is interesting. You you bring up a point about the bipartisan. Um repression of mumia the current appeal is um is a prime example of this bipartisanship right? um, The issues in this current appeal is um evidence that the prosecutors withheld for thirty six years, okay. In the United States, there's a U.S. Supreme Court opinion called Brady versus Maryland. They call it Brady issue. And it essentially says that the prosecution has a duty and a responsibility to turn over all evidence of guilt as well as all evidence of innocence to the defense before the trial. They say in a timely manner. Now, I would think that you don't need to have a law degree (laughs) or even a history degree to say that 36 years is not timely, right? So in Pennsylvania, we have the Brady Standard from the U.S. Supreme Court. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court has issued similar types of rulings that what prosecutors are supposed to do in terms of turning over information. The rules of professional conduct that cover lawyers in Pennsylvania is a whole, you know, like dozens of pages in terms of what they should do and what they shouldn't do. There's a special section in there. It's actually it's called the Special Section for Prosecutors, um, Section 3.8. And of the four things that they say prosecutors should do, one is that prosecutors should make timely disclosures of all evidence that is either inculpatory guilt or exculpatory innocence. And further, in the Pennsylvania Code, there's a provision where prosecutors are supposed to turn over information. Now, over the years, prosecutors have gone into court and objected to different um, legal proceedings from Abu Jamal by saying, we've turned over everything, we've turned over everything, we've turned over everything. Well, here's the interesting thing with this current appeal, this this evidence that I have been referencing that they kept for 36 years. This evidence was not found in a trunk of an abandoned car or in somebody's basement. It was found in the office of the district attorney by the current district attorney, a guy named Larry Krasner, who is um, seen, and and rightfully so, uh, as a very progressive uh, DA. And um, Krasner, uh, around 2018, uh, December, he was... Moving around the office, he had just been elected um, uh, months before that. So he just wanted to see the lay of the office. And they found a floor between two floors, like a a subfloor. And most of the people in the office uh, didn't even know that that floor existed. So he goes into a storage closet, finds all of these old files, six boxes of which had information on Abu Jamal. Now, of relevance, there's three very key pieces of information that came out of those boxes. There were two and, like, only two witnesses during the trial that that positively said that they saw Mumia shoot and kill Officer Daniel Faulkner. One was a cab driver and one was a prostitute. There, um, without getting too deep into it, I mean, the reality is that neither of them were actually there and evidence indicates that they weren't, but let's just take their story that they saw it. So the, pros- uh, the, the cab driver, uh, weeks after the trial, a handwritten note to the prosecutor saying, I've tried to reach you by telephone. I can't get you on the telephone. So I decided to write a note. When are you going to give me the money that you promised? When are you going to give me the money? Now, mm. witnesses, prosecution witnesses, are paid, uh, a fee, you know, to come in to testify. Um, you know, just like a, a maintenance kind of a fee. They're put up in hotels, all of the food and everything is taken care of. So what money is he talking about? He apparently was talking about you promised me money for him in, in exchange for my testimony, which should be automatic, you know, let me out of jail. The prostitute right. there were, there was, um, a series of memos between the Lumia's the trial prosecutor and other prosecutors in the office to make sure that this particular person got favorable treatment. So after the trial, uh, the, the uh, few outstanding cases that the person had um, were dropped. Uh, and before the trial, this person was in prison in Massachusetts and Philadelphia authorities went up and got her released from prison to come back to Philadelphia. And to show you how they coddled this woman over the years, uh, a few years after Mumia's trial and conviction, she was on trial for uh, an armed robbery. She robbed the person and stole their car. She robbed the person at night point and stole their car. The judge uh, was going to not give her bail because um you know she had all of these uh, a long series of about 40 arrests and uh, many of those um, arrests were were related to failure to appear in court a police officer comes in actually a detective and said that she's an important witness in a case uh could she sign her own bail and the judge agreed you know because the prosecution wanted the police department wanted it they let this person sign their own bail and walk out of the courtroom on a armed robbery case. And the woman was never seen in the court again. And um, I guess around the early 2000s, there was an appeal uh, that Mumia had filed and they were trying to uh, find this person. And all of a sudden the prosecution said, oh, well she's dead. Uh, And here's uh, her death certificate. The social security number didn't match, the fingerprints didn't match. So they, they disappeared this woman. Right, wow. and then there's a,
0: another Listen. piece of evidence in that file. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, we're just about out of time, but I, I, I,
1: I oh, okay. guess. But I'm just saying. But yes, what I want please. to say is this: that that the prosecutor in the city of Philadelphia, the, the district attorney, found this evidence. Now, this prosecutor, I said, is a very progressive prosecutor. He's exonerated about 29 people, and from 2018, when he found this evidence. To today, there have been 33 people that have been exonerated from wrongful convictions in Philadelphia. 31 of those 33, one of the elements in the exoneration was withheld evidence, the prosecution withholding evidence. So here, this prosecutor, a Democrat and a liberal, will recognize and condemn prosecutors withholding evidence in 31 cases, yet in Mumia's case, the prosecutors in court fighting, fighting strenuously for him not to be uh, given any kind of relief because they're saying that yes, we withheld this evidence for thirty-six years, but it really didn't hurt him in the court. So, mm. <laughs> yes, our witnesses yeah. uh, look like they lied and cheated, but uh, it, it didn't it didn't hurt him his his, his case, which is preposterous. Yeah. But it just shows you the institutional level of. Impression that Abel Jamal has sustained for 40 years.
0: Terrific. Listen, Lynn, I can't tell you how much uh, we appreciate uh, the information and the work that you've done on this case, not giving it up all the way through. We have been speaking with Professor Lynn Washington. We we're talking about the case of uh, Mumbia Abu-Jamal. Uh, Lynn Washington, Professor Washington, uh, teaches at Temple University. He's an award-winning journalist, and he's been covering Abu-Jamal's case for four decades. Wow. Lynn, thanks for coming back. Thanks for all the extraordinary work uh, you've done on this case. This is, you know, this is uh, not full of rewards, uh, but the people appreciate the fact that this, this genius of journalism is being suppressed, still imprisoned, uh, because the powers that be are afraid of the truth, and they're certainly terrified of black truth-tellers. Thanks, Lynn. We'll talk to you soon. Please keep us
1: posted on okay. this case. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, take care. Uh, bye-bye.
0: You're absolutely welcome. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Burns. We went a little over, but we have a very important segment coming up on the torrential rains and what's happening with the folks who are hungry or forced to live outside and uh not getting any help, particularly in uh, South Bay, around Santa Cruz, but uh, up and down the coast. We're going to take a two-minute break, and we'll be back with Keith McHenry. Stay with us. Flashpoints on KPFA Pacifico Radio in the San Francisco Bay Area up and down the West Coast, uh, and we're happy to have you along with us on Free Speech Radio, the People's Radio Network Pacifica. We're now joined by Keith McHenry. He does a regular segment with us. We call it Food Fight. But these are incredibly tough times, uh, Keith McHenry. Uh, the, the waters are flowing and the folks outside are in grave danger. You wanna talk a little bit about uh, sort of what it looks like on the ground there. I know you've been taking a look at what's going on up and down California, but why don't you start with uh, Santa Cruz, where you're based and what are the issues? What are the concerns?
2: Well, you know, in in Santa Cruz, there are hundreds of people that are not able to get into the few like you know, normal shelters that they have here. So there's, uh, they live outside and they can't get even into like, you know, out of the weather at all. And the city uh, of Santa Cruz actually has a policy. If you're caught in a, in a uh, parking garage trying to get out of the rain, the police come in and force you back out into the rain. And that's normally the case anyway. But now with the, the rains are uh, unbelievable down here. And, um, it, it, it is—it's just shocking that to think that a city government and a county government, Santa Cruz County, would not open some of their their facilities, which are large empty spaces. For instance, there's a, a Warriors Stadium, and there's also the and the new mayor, uh, Fred Keeley, is like this big Warriors fan, and the and the stadium just sits there empty. Um, you know, tonight it'll be empty, like it has been through all the uh, the the uh, atmospheric rivers and um and then also they have there's a veterans hall which will be empty tonight again as it has been through the atmospheric rivers and there's civic auditorium there's enough space for people to get in and out of the rain. so what they have offered however is a place for 25 of these hundreds of people to stay in and out of the rain from the hours of eight o'clock tonight to eight tomorrow morning and the staff there at that little shelter uh, depot park shelter were tra- arguing with the city government and the county to allow them to stay open 24 hours so at least those 25 people could stay out of the rain. but they refuse and we did a campaign to try to uh kind of get public support to demand that the city open these empty buildings during this time because you just imagine I'm out in the rain in the middle of the day doing food not bombs. And when I come, I am soaking wet, even in rain gear. And I come to my, you know, come indoors at the end of my, you know, doing this all day. And I can take off all my clothes and everything and get into new clothes. But hundreds of other people have to stand in this rain 24 hours a day and there's no possible way for them to even take their clothes off and put on dry clothes because whatever clothes they might have in their backpack is also soaking wet. And this is I call it a special kind of cruelty because we've been lobbying and argue you know protesting for all through the winter trying to get these facilities available at least during the atmospheric storms. And so they did open one Uh, civic auditorium and their assumption was that house people who were losing their ability to get to their housing or did lose their housing during the earlier atmospheric rivers would come down from the hills and stay at civic auditorium although they what turned out was that one night a lot of the people living on the streets downtown heard about this at our meal and they went there and filled the entire auditorium Uh, with our blue pup tents actually and stuff that they brought in and and so on and when they found out it wasn't really going to be the good residents of santa cruz using this emergency shelter they just shut it down and forced everybody back out into the rain and they have failed to reopen at the same time when we're making that plea to the government to allow people to just get in out of the rain during atmospheric rivers um They sent us a a letter threatening to arrest us if we tried to feed the homeless in the parking garage 10, which is what we had agreed with the city uh, chief of police to do. And And then they actually sent a lot of cops there. Way before we were even ready to set up, to make sure we couldn't get into the garage, that homeless people couldn't get in out of the rain. And then we thought, well, we'll do a protest at City Hall because there's awnings around City Hall. At least we could serve food under there and have a protest demanding that the Civic Auditorium across the street be opened. And they sent a whole raft of cops there and threatened to arrest us for having a rally uh, um, in support of getting people in out of the rain. And so far, we only know of two people who have died um, from this. Um, I don't think they were homeless people. But, uh, you know, it's just, just unbelievable. It's just so cruel. It's the mo- most cruel thing to n- intentionally leave hundreds, pe- hundreds of people standing in this rain. And either there's like this class blindness or this is overt evil cruelty. Uh, and I'm <laughs> to say, I think it's the cruelty that's really what's it's about
0: sounds like cruelty keith mchenry now how far is santa cruz from silicon what we call silicon valley
2: well tech we are on the uh, other side of the hill so it's like a 30 minute drive to uh, silicon valley from here if, uh, if, if you can get there in this rain, it probably it might well be cut off by the storms again, as has happened repeatedly. But there is a regular uh, parade of Google buses, for instance, that pick up employees to go over the hill. And there is a lot of Google uh, executives that live in Santa Cruz, including the chief attorney, uh, Miss uh, Prado, who lives on the west side, who actually has her husband is the treasurer of this anti-homeless organization called Take Back Santa Cruz, and we ended up intercepting, uh, we got in the Public Records Act request emails showing that they're trying to get my car towed for some reason uh, because I'm supporting the homeless, and the president of the homeless union, uh, Alicia Kuhl's RV. Where she's living with her, where she was living with her three children and her husband, and so they they have a weekly meeting to determine how to attack homeless people in Santa Cruz, and um, you know so these are the large some of the largest institutions, and they also have like uh, huge offices in Santa Cruz, and um, and this is also true of Facebook employees of, of okay, eBay, let,
0: let me interrupt so Keith. I, I want uh, thanks for you know, setting that up for us. And so how much, it's interesting, it looks like the Biden administration is very sympathetic to making sure that everybody is made whole. Billions of millions made whole. So your thoughts on the the rush to bail out silicon bank land while letting the homeless in the hordes, and this goes up and down the coast, uh, risk life and limb to try and get through torrential rains while hungry and homeless. There's a lot of attention going to that little bank and no attention to the... Go on, please. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's no... None of the local media or national media is talking about the suffering. When I say hundreds of people just in Santa Cruz, that's in the town of Santa Cruz. There's hundreds of others in Santa Cruz County. There's like literally there's thousands of people within like a you know, five mile drive of, of the headquarters of, of Silicon Valley Bank who are having to survive this. In San Jose and in San and, and you know all all around there, it's like it's outrageous, and they they could have easily provided at least emergency shelter through this. The amount of money they have, of course, in, they got billions of dollars, and here this bank is uh, they're being bailed out in within like you know from Friday to now, and that we've had years of us struggling to try to get adequate shelter in in this area and it just does not happen. It, it, is, it is criminal, and it's obviously intentional. So the super wealthy, they get the money right away. The rest of us, who are victims of their economic policies, we're left to stand in torrential range and face life and death situations. It, 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 there will be people, sadly, will, will discover that are living outside who will be crushed by trees that are falling because of the loose soil, um, you know, people. It, it and it's just it it, it is. It's, it's it's like a boy. It's a like a let them eat cake type of situation here. Um, but even more brutal. And, and and it is amazing that there's a you know I just posted my essay called a special kind of cruelty that I, I put out on on anarchist uh, cook uh, dot blog space. Uh, you know on on WordPress. And it got taken down instantly off of Facebook. Didn't even survive. Right. Like Keith, could you minutes. adjust
0: yourself? We're we'll losing you a little bit. I want, I'd like you to sort of adjust your, maybe we can get a better sound. And Reed, do you have it, the piece in front of you?
2: Yeah, I do. I have it. It's called, um, and, and it could be that the weather is really bad, because even listening to the last segment, I was have it was really weird. So it could be that it's not anything but the, the rain's already in. Packing the telephone lines. But um, a special kind of cruelty forcing the homeless of Santa Cruz into the harsh torrents of the atmospheric river. And uh, so, the city of Santa Cruz is forcing hundreds of people who are homeless to stand out in the atmospheric river. Just imagine standing day after day in these torrents of rain with no way to change into dry clothes. These people could... Be spared the suffering if the city opened empty public buildings like the Civic Auditorium, the Veterans Hall, and the Warrior Stadium for 24 hours a day during these deadly storms. But they have refused. The one emergency shelter is only open from, for 25 people from, eight, from the hours of 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., leaving those few lucky people to stand, spend their day standing huddled against the rain in the doorways of a failed business see that's the other thing people are using the failed businesses of uh, pacific avenue to 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 shelter in um and then the, the city of santa cruz is not only failing to provide safe shelter during the atmospheric river on march 9th 2023 the city threatened to arrest food not bombs if we shared our meal next to a parking garage next to parking garage 10 forcing people to stand in the downpour to get their only daily hot meal provided to the homeless during the three years of the pandemic lockdowns this sure is an odd way to honor the city's one volunteer organization who shared food and survival gear every day since march 14 2020 on June 29, 2021, the city of Santa Cruz announced that they would receive $14.5 million from the state to fund their homeless response. So far, there is little evidence that this has provided any assistance and it is sure and it sure has not been used to provide emergency shelter for the from the brutal atmospheric river. So I, I, it's a pretty long essay, but the other point that I okay. want to make oh. is at the same time, food stamps, you know, a lot of, if you're not on food stamps, you didn't realize that you just lost hundreds of dollars, you know, like you might lose $200 for your family this, in April of food stamps. They're already cutting food stamps right. now, but across the country, there's like millions of Americans that are losing their food stamps. And top of the bank failures that are happening, which are, you know, in the Bay Area, there's nearly 200,000 employees have lost their jobs in the in the past year. 50,000 lost their jobs in January alone. And, and so people are actually starting to, we're seeing people living in, in Teslas now. So this is a, a really incredible. Dickens you said you saw people living in <laughs> Teslas? Living in yeah, Teslas? there's people that eat at food not bombs that live in their Tesla. This is what this is the reality. So unless you're like uh, Roe Conner and and, and uh, you know and the and the all, and these uh, people that that you know that you know S, uh, you know Silicon Valley Bank CEO took out over three billion dollars in stock, three billion dollars in stock the day before it crashed and gave bonuses. The executives, and meanwhile, employees in the high tech industry are are losing their jobs, and therefore losing their apartments, are failing to pay their mortgages, and are ending up becoming homeless themselves. I mean, this is psychotic, and uh, and, and and yet there's not you know we have had we've known that millions of, you know the the. Uh, Eviction projects said that 40 million American families were facing eviction uh, due to the uh, to the pandemic, and yet, you know, other than uh, rental, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, bans against evictions during that time, now the doors are wide open. The pandemic relief is gone. The eviction moratoriums are gone, and the economy is crashing. And there still isn't a plan. The, we're a democratically run state in a country that has a democratic president and who uh, had two years of being in office where they could have passed anything through the democratically controlled house and Senate. And we're still waiting for some kind of action. And it looks like that action is going to come way too late for thousands and thousands, millions of people. And, and, and it's just, it's gotta be cruelty. It can't, it's gotta be, if I'm sitting here in Santa Cruz, um, with virtually no resources, and I know this, you know the people in power with money know this, and they're intentionally not doing anything to help to help the uh, you know alleviate the crisis of the homeless and, and uh, right on their doorstep. It, it, it is criminal; oh. it's completely criminal.
0: That's the voice of Keith McHenry. Uh, we're sorry for the the difficult sound quality. We're in the middle of uh, atmospheric rivers. Uh, and folks trying to struggle outside, uh, trying to um, save some lives in terms of what could happen with folks who are facing uh, this weather outdoors. Keith, it's amazing uh, that you're on this. We just have a minute or two left. What are you hearing, what's happening down south, up north? We know that uh, Food Not Bombs has uh, locations uh, all across the state, all around the world, really, but what are you hearing? Are are other folks facing the same kinds of struggles that uh, you're seeing there in Santa Cruz, very quickly?
2: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's been a disaster in Isla Vista, not bonds They've got a similar crisis where there's, they're not putting people in emergency shelters. Uh, and, and, you know, people are suffering there. L.A. County, same thing. San Diego has been really, um, a disaster. Um, it, it is very, very painful to see like you say, millions of, of homeless people in California, uh, who are hearing all this news of all this money to help the homeless. Gavin Newsom is often announcing another $500 million here or there to help the homeless, but the homeless themselves do not see it. And in fact, they're passing laws to criminalize the homeless even worse. There's SB 31, which will make it illegal for people to sit, lie, or set up a tent or camp or sleep within a thousand feet of sensitive areas and a sensitive area could be a park like echo park like that horrible uh um violent police action that forced hundreds of people out of echo park into into doorways around town and then sadly the new mayor who run around on providing solutions for for homelessness in la appears to not be uh all that interested in that i I mean it, it is it is just tragic there is um Okay. And it's going to get where a lot listen, worse. Keith, these yeah. Egg failures go as, as it looks like. It's it going to get a, a lot worse. That's
0: the, the that's depression. the final word. That's going to have to be the final word. I'm sorry, Keith. Uh, we're we're, you, we're against the clock. Uh, that's Keith McHenry. Food not bombs. How did people get to food not bombs, Keith? What's the best way? Come to
2: foodnotbombs.net. Net. That's where we can get all the uh, details on how to connect with us. Foodnotbombs.net.
0: Okay. All right. Be safe. Thanks for taking the time out, and thanks for the decades-long work uh, to feed the hungry and uh, help deal with houselessness, which is a major problem in this country. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein.
2: wraps it up for another episode of flashpoints our executive producer is dennis bernstein senior producers are miguel gavilan molina and kevin pina technical director is mike biggs for previous episodes go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net for questions or comments email dennis at kpfa.org thank you for listening